premium panel discussion, battery industry paradigm, plan for mass production and permanent innovation adoption. Dear audience, my name is Ludmila Der. I'm the Managing Director of Elite Experts Conferences and I would like to welcome you to the next episode of the Elite Experts Conferences podcast. Whether at live events or in the digital world, we bring together cool promising tech startups with exciting innovative global players and generate a platform where the world of sustainable technology meets. Get to know the different companies, but also the inspiring leader personalities behind these brand names. Our motto is towards a better and cleaner future through knowledge transfer and technology. We have today not one, not two, but three guests in our premium panel. It is my honor and my absolute pleasure to introduce to our audience Dominic Scheider, as head of industry strategy and marketing for transportation EMEA from Rockwell Automation. Rockwell Automation doesn't need additional introduction. It's the world's largest company dedicated to industrial automation. Our second guest is Dr. Greg Ombach. As Executive Vice President and Head of Battery Systems and Head of Group Strategy and Innovation at Drexelmeyer Group, one of the major automotive suppliers combining the core competences of interior, electrical, electronics and battery systems. And last but not least, I would like to introduce our third guest, Jan Van So, CEO at ACC Automotive Sales Company. Our loyal listeners already know you and ACC. For all the others, ACC is a high-tech company founded in 2020 and backed by Softotal and Group PSA Opel that is nowadays part of Stellantis. ACC's goal is to power the future of the automotive industry by innovating in battery technology. And now let's start our panel discussion. Battery industry paradigm, plan for mass production and permanent innovation adoption. Jan, we already had a one-on-one interview with you a little over a year ago when ACC was just a few months old. There were great goals and very, very serious challenges ahead of you. Could you please briefly outline what this year has brought to ACC's development? Which achievements are you most proud of? Well, basically, we have executed our roadmap and we had a significant good news last quarter of last year. I would stress three points. The first one is that now we have an R&D center capable to engineer, to prototype, to test any cell for car manufacturers. That's the first engineering center of that type existing in France. So that's the first one. The second is we have just started the operations in our pilot plant in Mersac, close to Angoulême. It's a uh, 135 million euro investment where we are going to test uh, all the process we'll have later on in our gigafactories. So it's very critical for this validation of the process. And the third one, which was a good news of last year, is the fact that Mercedes has announced that they will join ACC, meaning that When the deal is going to be closed in a few few weeks, we'll have three shareholders, each of them having one third of the of the company. So SAF Total on one hand, Stellantis on the other hand, Mercedes on the other hand. I really believe that the mere fact that two such big OEM, Stellantis and Mercedes, are entering into the capital of, of ACC is making this project of ACC 
still more realistic. Otherwise, they won't trust us. They won't trust us. So it's, it's something we are very proud of because we've been able to demonstrate to Mercedes that we could be a really very good player. And, you know, I remember that you said, like, it's always good to have nice strategies and plans and so on, but it's more important to have action and, let's say, to meet the goal and, and to be also, let's say, in the plan of your milestones. And you manage that. So, and especially, again, saying in the pandemic time, in those two years where it was so challenging, and let's say what you achieved in that last year is amazing. So really, congratulations on that. What's pretty clear is that, Indeed, I had uh, two bosses, Carlos Ghosn and later on Carlos Tavares, who were keeping on telling us planning is, uh, is 5%, execution is 95%. Execution, execution, execution. Otherwise, you are producing paper only. Nice PowerPoint uh, files, but it doesn't deliver the results. So, uh, execution is indeed paramount. Keep it up like this. So definitely congratulations on that. And yeah, we will go more in the details on, on that as well, also on the Mercedes part. So and now the Fit for 55 proposal in Europe banning, let's say, all ICE vehicles by 2035 greatly accelerate the rate of electrification. So Dominic, what will be the major challenges in ramping up EV battery manufacturing to the mass production levels required? Can the European battery supply chain keep up with this pace of expansion? Uh, it's a great question. And before I respond to that, uh, first of all, Ludmila, thank you for having me today uh, on this panel. My pleasure. And uh, I think by uh, phrasing the question, I I'm sure you had the, the response by yourself. It's an immense challenge. Of course, it's not uh, Jan or Greg today on this panel that we said difference because 2035 is the fit for 55, but... Every OEMs have more or less planned to have a full EV scope by 2030. You mentioned Carlos Tavares just before, but he just expressed yesterday how much it is, even today, an immense challenge. And no one really, after one century of producing ICE vehicles, be able to say what will be really the social impact of that and the, the dimension of, uh, of the changes. Okay, for the EV itself, the car, it's not so much a challenge. It's basically on the same cars uh, plant that exists today, at least for the mature automakers. They are developing a modular platform to be ready to cope with uh, the changes and regulations from EV, ICE, or plug-in hybrid. We see a lot of startups coming with two wheels, three wheels, and disruptive materials. So, of course, the car itself will be impacted by a lot of innovations, and Tesla and the rival in UK are doing a a lot of composites and new process, but definitely the battery will focus uh, the, the most of the challenges. And this is the second part of your question. Can European battery supply chain keep up with the pace of expansion? I think we will talk again after my question uh, with the rest of the panel. I think the first, the first gigafactory, uh, one of the first was uh, in Sparks, Nevada with Panasonic Energy and, and Tesla. Uh, they faced a, a lot of challenges uh, here with the uh, The timing, technical challenges, cultural challenges as well between Americans and Japanese in the desert of Nevada. And we have to work together to make this ramp-up phase faster. When I read the Northvolt uh, end of December saying they just produced a few cells, they are far, far to have the, the full capacity. So how can we all together work to accelerate this process? And uh, for sure, we are not at the end of this, just the beginning. Just the beginning, but very, very challenging beginning. And actually, we are... We are also staying in this topic of big challenges. 
So Greg, what do you see as the biggest challenges why some companies publish the greatest results on a lab scale and then it takes years and years and they are still not at the level of mass production? So is it more the chemistry that is the challenge or is it the technical implementation of mass production, including automation and robotics? What, what is it actually? Thanks, Ludmila, for having me here today. And honestly speaking, I like here the one of the quotes from, from Elon Musk, who he said something like that the large-scale manufacturing, especially if it's a new invention, is somehow between 1,000 to 10,000 percent times harder than a prototype. And we have already heard from Jan today in the first question that ACC is not going from the lab directly to the Gigafactory. They are building a prototype line first in order to prove and develop the processes, which later on are going to be implemented in the mass production. Now, if we will look what how the industry is developing, the battery industry over the last years, we had first started and we had a lot of the development happening independently, independently from the car manufacturers. It means those batteries which you are using today in cars were developed for electronics. The Panasonic never used those batteries for the cars before when they started working with Tesla together. And now uh, having this independent development from the car where the car has completely different requirements, if we are talking about the safety, if we are talking about the accuracy, if we are talking about the lifetime, if we are talking about many other aspects and then not mentioning the cost, which probably is the most harder and most important in auto, then having those independent developments, of course, is very challenging. Therefore, firstly, now we see that they start merging And I'm really happy to see that the ACC is working with Daimler, is working with the Celantis, is working with the Total. And then they are addressing, you know, this development already from the proper, from the proper direction. They are not developing the cell for itself. They are developing all the self dedicated for some vehicles which have some requirements. And now if we say so, you know, If we just look on the on the simple battery pack, or it's like then behind me as a, a, a wall on the wall where you have a couple of hundred, couple of thousand cells in one pack, and those cells have to be almost identical because if not, then you are going to have a huge challenges on the vehicle side. Therefore, having produced such kind of a cell in the mass production, which are almost identical, is really very challenging. And therefore, it's a completely different story. If you make one cell in the lab and then by hand, it's like a piece of art. You could tune it. You could make it perfect. You could make even 100 of those cells made by hand. But then, the, of course, the cost is, going, is, is very huge. And now, if you'd like to go from this handmade cell to the high-volume manufacturing, it's a completely different story. And then those challenges are starting, firstly, when we are not just developing the technology from the hemistry point of view. And we are going to talk about the other hemistries where we are now today and, and where we go in the future later on in the panel. But if we are just trying to go from this lab to the high volume production, those processes, those scaling, those dedicated development for the proper platform is the biggest challenge. And you actually mentioned just uh, on one side the price, but actually it's super, super crucial because as I remember also what was said in the previous interview with Jan, You said, for example, you are, yes, sure, you have like PSA or Stellantis as one of the customers, but for example, they will only pay for those batteries when they are competitive, also price-wise. So it means it, it's not just the performance, it's pricing as well. So super, super crucial. And actually, 
it's also not just important to be, let's say, at the same level, for example, like the producers from the Asian part, but also like to outperform them. So, and now my next question is, Jan, what is, for example, automotive sales company strategy to outperform competition like CATL, LG, and let's say for the players? Uh, it's a very good and challenging question. You know that LG and CATL did start producing uh, the batteries roughly 15 years ago. And thanks to this time, they've uh, gained a lot of, uh, of experience. They have went down the learning curve. And the question is really for us, uh, before outperforming them, catching up. And I would say that to do so, we really rely on all the European competences, all the European competences. And I would mention one, all shareholders. Clearly, all shareholders. We are, uh, we have one of them, which is SAFT. SAFT is producing, is producing batteries for lithium-ion uh, batteries for, for years and years. They are serving highly demanding customers from a quality point of view. So they have a great experience from a product and process point of view. We are relying on the Stellantis used to mass manufacturing, which is not the competency of, of SAFT. And uh, in a very near future, we, we will rely on the expertise of Mercedes, which is used to buy batteries from Chinese suppliers. And we've got through this uh, sourcing a very deep knowledge of what's good to produce, what's, uh, which are the mistakes we, we should avoid. So that's first, the, the shareholders. The second point is all the labs, all the industrial companies which are working on those topics in Europe. And clearly for us, the real question is to leverage those competencies in order to reduce the gap we have in resources and the fact that we are starting later. And I'm really convinced that in Europe, based on those shareholders, based on the, on the labs, based on the industrial companies we have in Europe, we are capable to catch up we are capable to uh, outperform them later on. Finally, I would add one point is that we are obviously benchmarking. We know a lot about the process, the products those companies are mastering. And therefore, we're not starting from, from scratch. We are, we are building on this knowledge in order to catch up as quickly as possible. And I'm really, I'm really convinced that we will do so when starting our operation uh, end of next year, yeah. And you said like in the first part of your answer, you said later on, and then you said like, let's say in, uh, we will catch up, etc., etc. So can you give at least a little approximate timeline? So what do you think? When can it be that you cannot just catch up, but also outperform? So Well, catch up for sure when launching the first product. I'm really convinced that thanks to the product definition, thanks to the process definition we have, uh, we have defined will be at the very best level. Outperform? Well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I know you like challenges, so tell us an estimation. <laughs> no, no, the, the sooner the better. I, I, won't, I won't give it a date. I won't give it a date. The sooner the better. Okay, the sooner the better, yeah. We will meet for the next interview <laughs> and I will ask again. <laughs> Let's say we will analyze that. Yeah. And now, Dominic, where do you see the role of companies like Grockwell Automation in this, yeah, let's call it really race? And what factors need to come together to enable flourishing battery mass production in Europe as well? So especially as a counterbalance to Asia. 
Yes, AGA for sure is a, is a benchmark, as we just said before. And not everyone maybe knows Rockwell. We are the largest company worldwide dedicated to industrial automation. And the brand Alan Bradley for our PLC was created in 19, 1903. So one century of automation. So it's not the first crisis and the first revolution that we see across all the industries. Uh, and we are our goal is simply to, to support the battery makers, uh, depending on where they are in their journey. But the fact is that most of the equipments for these plants are, are coming from Asia today, even in European battery makers. So we have a, a role to play in order to connect of these machines and to make out of these machines a unified plant that will run uh, on top performance. So connecting the machines with conveyors that respect the, the white rooms, because white rooms is not an automotive environment. It's a chemical environment. It's life science environment. It's, it's not really typical for an automotive business. So mechanical stuff inside the white room, it takes a lot and we can help here as well. But connect the machines and tr we talk about training and empower the workforce. That's also a challenge where the, the digital technologies that we offer, we and our competitors can really help to face the challenge of skills, train and have the people uh, really empower on the shop floor. So that's another one. But uh, I remember a meeting in, uh, in, in SAFT in 2010. So it's 12 years from now in Paris when uh, they were just uh, working on the, on the first project uh, in Charlotte and um, uh, Hollande, uh, maybe the GV with Johnson Control, I think the Hollande plant. Mm -hmm. And they were looking at that time for machine builders in Europe from the paper industry and paper and web technologies really to design very large calendaring machines. And that was the first time that uh, companies were uh, considering, you know, transfer of technology from one environment to another one to, to really cut the cost, as you said before. And I think this type of know-how transfer is coming also more and more to the, to the battery ecosystem. And we have a role to play as well here, working with the end user, working with the machine builders and accelerate this, uh, this ecosystem in Europe, as we said before. That's really where the digital technologies can also help. But I will come, that, uh, come back to that uh, later. You mentioned also that the equipment producers are also coming mostly from Asia. Is that also a huge issue for you? We are a global company. We are an American headquarters and we are truly global. So we work with the Korean uh, machine builders as well as uh, the emerging uh, European machine builders. But I'm sure that, as we said before, to succeed with the European uh, brands competing with the CRTL, the LG and others, We will need to accelerate on this uh, ecosystem of machine builders in Europe, working with uh, the research centers, the labs that are emerging in every country or so. And, and this is where is our role. Any project is global. I mentioned uh, uh, Pena in US with, uh, with Tesla. Every project are truly with Asia and Europe working together. And this is where a global company like Rockwell or other big ones can, can play a role to connect these things to make really the project and the ramp up very fast and the cost of goods sold, the COGS is really low because it's not only techniques, it's at the end, as you said, the balance sheet, <laughs> but profitability and OEE of the plant. This is where are the real indicators. It all comes together. And actually now for, for the next uh, question, let's say I would like to talk about shortages also like which might be also natural when when you uh, work globally and when you have to rely on suppliers coming from asia or from wherever they come so greg now the question for you as uh, battery volumes frame up do you expect to see widespread shortages and an inability to supply batteries for evs for example we have already seen price spikes in chinese sourced lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide recently which is also driving up complete battery prices Do you see that coming? 
Definitely. What we are going to see is that during the next couple of years, we are going to have uh, huge challenges in supply chain. On the one hand, we are trying to build up completely new industry and not just in, in Asia or in Europe or in US, but globally. And this means that we have to ramp up not uh, just the cell production, but also the raw materials which uh, are needed to, to make it. And uh, recently we saw already the good example in automotive where similar shortages uh, have been seen and are still going to be with us for the next year or two was in area of the chip crisis, uh, where automotive business really underestimated how is dependent on this uh, component. And the reason why we are not selling as many cars as you would like to was exactly because of those shortages. Now, with this lessons learned, uh, from the from the chip crisis, semiconductor crisis, the automotive is trying to address already these challenges. And we have seen recently, you know, we are talking about the graphite, cobalt, lithium, manganese, and nickel, and even the copper. All of those materials, the raw materials, are are going to be in the shortage, or many of them are going to be in shortage over the next over the next two three years. Before the mining refinery is going to build up for the future capacity. And it's not so that we have it already enough. We have to build it up in order to address those bigger volumes which are coming. And even now we saw that the lithium over the last couple of two years doubled the price. And we saw also that recently, like for example, Tesla from the car manufacturer perspective is already securing, the, for example, the graphite in the Mozambique. It means this type of the actions from the OEMs, which are going to be more vertically integrated in battery production. It means not just integrated, integrating those ready cells into the, into the chassis or into the packs, but going really to the raw material is going to be the new way of how we are going to work. And uh, having seen the ACC or similar companies like uh, GCATLs, where a lot of the collaborations is going between car manufacturer and the cell supplier producer, then of course, this has to also secure the material in order to build it. And just uh, finishing, I think it's going to be easier for the companies, for the cell supplier companies or cell builder companies, which have already booked business with the car manufacturers. And this booked business has to be already, I would say, mature and has to go in the higher volumes compared to the new players who are coming to the market. And then they have to fight for booking the business with the car manufacturers on the one end and building up entire supply chain on the other hand without having this book business. Therefore, this is going to be a huge challenge for these for this newcomers without support from other OEMs, which are maybe still not decided with whom they would like to work. So definitely the next two to three years will be very, very challenging. And maybe, and we will also come to that topic as well. So this vertical integration could be one of the solutions, let's say. No? So, but as I said, we, we will come to that in more detail later on. And now, Jan, what are the key points that Europe can learn from Asia and battery production? We mentioned Asia now so many times and so many questions and replies. So what do we really learn from them? Well, it's clear that uh, we are uh, observing our Asian competitors very carefully because obviously for the time being, it's, uh, it is a benchmark. My view is that on one hand, we could be much more frugal as regard to the investment. That's, I mean, uh, part of my culture that part of the Stellantis culture. We do consider that 
piling up the investment is not the best way to run a company. We are better off minimizing the investment, trying to do as much as possible with as few as possible, because it's uh, it has a clear impact on the uh, on the capex, but it has as well a clear impact on the on the opex. So that's one first point. We could be much more frugal than uh, they are. I've seen casinos in uh, in China and Korea. We could be better. The second point we've learned is that battery industry is clearly a data-driven manufacturing industry. You can't imagine how important is mastering the data in order to, to achieve the best OE, to achieve the lowest scrap rate, which have huge impact on the, on the P&L. So from that point of view, I really believe that in Europe, we're good. We're good on uh, on everything which has to do with uh, data analysis, and and it and it's lead that we will extensively rely on the data scientists in order to capture all the value of the uh, tons of data we will gather in our uh, in our process. The third point, which was already mentioned by my colleagues, which is an opportunity, but a, but as well a risk. We're gonna buy our pieces of equipment from Asia. All the pieces of equipment for the time being are either Chinese or Korean, meaning that we'll have exactly the same pieces of equipment as all competitors. So from that point of view, it is a chance. From that point of view, it is a chance. The flip side of this coin is the fact that relying only on Asian suppliers, Chinese suppliers for the pieces of equipment is, in my perspective, a major threat for the future, a major threat for the supply. So that's a, a chance from a performance point of view at the beginning. That's a major threat for the growth of the, of the capacity we are forecasting in, the, in Europe. And actually, to make it a bit more positive, I mean, it's also a huge business opportunity for European suppliers to offer exactly that because you will buy if the pricing is okay and so on and so on. So, or let's say also to, to go into the market as a second supplier, the third supplier, and then let's say to be competitive and then to win. And also, you know what, the, the first point that you mentioned is also like, okay, when I connecting the dots again to the previous interview, you also said like, We would not like to invest so much, let's say, to stay agile and to use the resources that we have to the maximum. And let's say you were so eager to stay this kind of small, agile startup, kind of, because, I mean, you are so well financially, let's say, supported. But anyway, and a lot of knowledge and also in this talent pools and so on. So, yeah. So it all come together. So I see like, okay, from what you said, what you can learn from Asia There's a huge potential and you try to implement that. So if it works well, so amazing. And so far we see that in the last year, so it worked well. So once again, keep on going like this. <laughs> uh, now let's say, let's, um, let's come to the next topic. And this is one of my most favorite topics. Everyone who knows me knows that I love the topic of business collaborations. And Dominic, could you please tell us more about the partnership with Cadenza They are a battery pioneer. They are not an established leading global player. So what is the strategic thinking behind this Foracol automation? At least so far, you can talk about that. Yeah, there are public uh, press releases about that. 
And it's not uh, an Asian uh, battery maker. Yes, for once, it's an uh, American battery maker. They are not so much on the, on the mobility space. They are more on uh, ESS, stationary uh, batteries. But same for us. I mean, business collaboration and partnership, this is part of our DNA. Uh, maybe as because we have uh, an American uh, DNA in our mindset, but we have very long relationship with some customers since four or five decades for some of them. So here, this is what we established with, with Cadenza. Because in some cases, we are just a component supplier for machine builders, so very low in the priority of the management for our customers. And in some cases, like Cadenza, we are ranked very high because it's not only about the manufacturing of the cells and the MES or the manufacturing execution of the production of the, of the batteries by itself. It's also on their business model, really, to develop a cloud portal to manage their deployed distributed uh, uh, energy source. So... Rockwell is not positioned only at the shop floor with the software on the shop floor, but really uh, at cloud level also to to get, as we said, data-driven industry. It's not at the end of the production line that the things are ending. What are happening with these battery cells? How can we avoid the peak of uh, energy and the the blackout out of these batteries? So the data-driven outside of the uh, exploration of these installed batteries will help us also on the manufacturing side. So... Same spirit as uh, a Tesla is, is a data generator in the cloud. Uh, same, these batteries distributed will be also generating in the cloud data that will be very important for, for the customer. So we need to, to set up partnership for that and long-term collaboration. It's not a one-shot project, yes. So far, I said just started, right? Because uh, what yes, I saw it was, Yes, it was announced in November 2021. But let's take this uh, more as an example of the type of discussions we have and co-manage objective that we define with uh, long-term customers. It's not just a project, please deliver this MES for next year. That will be a, a long and outstanding relationship uh, outside of that. So uh, it's just illustrating the, the changes also that our company are having from uh, an automation vendor to uh, a data management solution that we want to provide. Can I ask you one more uh, follow-up question on that? Because, you know, is recycling also a part of the, of the points you would like to tackle also within this partnership or it's, it's not a matter? It's not the matter today, as far as I know, but uh, me as a member of Recharge Association in Brussels, of course, the, the uh, eco-design and uh, I know ACC is talking a lot about that much better than me. Uh, the recycling is have to be part of the early phase of design. That's for sure. We cannot ignore all of that. But it's less in our perspective, uh, uh, I would say, today. Expect that we work with Kessler on the, on the battery passport technology. So the serialization of batteries, uh, upstream to downstream connectivity, all of that, yes, is part of our effort that we have, but not so much with Kalansa uh, at this point. Let me make also a connection now to Jan. Maybe you could also give this kind of yeah, insight because in the previous interview, you said recycling is so far not a topic for you because also there are not so many batteries available on the market and so on. So did something happen with this one year, let's say, on the topic of recycling? Well, I, I would say that it's still true that the quantity of batteries to be recycled won't be significant till, let's say, uh, 2030, 2035. Having said that, it's really a major concern. Major concern because, indeed, the car manufacturers will have to recycle the batteries uh, at the end of their life. But second, the scarcity of the natural resources, which have been uh, highlighted previously by, uh, by Greg, is pushing for, let's say, creating a, a second mine. And the second mine, at some point of time, will be the recycling activity. So 
besides uh, the regulation, which is going to push for a utilization more and more intensive of uh, recycled materials, there is an obvious need, which is uh, without recycling, we won't have sufficient natural resources to, to, to build the batteries. So yes, it is a major concern, major concern. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we are working with, uh, with our partners, car manufacturers, chemical companies, recycling companies to find the best solution for the future. Who is for you the leading partner in this kind of partnerships? Those are mostly, I guess, the chemical companies for you? Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> the three I didn't mention are, are important. The car manufacturers is very important because he is the one which will have to get the batteries at the end of their life. And it's not a simple exercise. It's not a simple exercise. Uh, think, of a, think of a car which is uh, 10 years old. There is no more connection between the car owner and the car manufacturer. So it's not a, it's not a simple exercise. The recycling company is obviously some, some, uh, an actor which is uh, paramount. The chemical company, yes, it's a very important actor because my uh, strong belief is that where the recycling activity will be the most efficient is close to the chemical company because I don't want having two different flows of chemical products, one coming from the chemical company I'm, uh, I'm dealing with and the, and the other one coming from the recycling company. Recycling company will have to deliver its uh, products to the chemical company I'm dealing with. Uh, and, and so if the loop is the shortest, that's the most efficient from, a, from an economic point of view. Thank you very much. Very, very insightful. And now we are staying at this topic of partnerships. And actually, Greg, now if we assume now that partnerships and collaboration, I would say you all agree. So just seeing the panels so far. So collaborations can be very, very smart way to be faster and more efficient and more innovative in this area. So what great examples of successful partnerships do you see in the industry and what are the main success factors? How to do it best? As, as we already have had uh, from, from Jan and Dominique, uh, without collaborations, uh, you would be not able to build up by your own this entire industry from scratch almost. Therefore, uh, this, is, this is given. You have to collaborate. The question is how and with whom you are going to collaborate. The challenging factor which is coming to the point to answer this question is that the business models in the automotive from the battery perspectives are changing. Because if you look a couple of years back, we had a very simple uh, value stream. You had the uh, material, you have the cell suppliers, you had the integrators like the tier one sitting in the middle, and you have a car manufacturers which were integrating those batteries which have been built by, by tier ones into their cars. But with the time, uh, it was noticed that uh, uh, this is not the most, I would say, efficient way from the OEM perspective, because I'm not just talking about the logistic where you have to bring very heavy uh, pieces from one place to another, but I'm talking about control which the car manufacturer has to have about this product, because this product, like the battery, has a huge impact on the entire vehicle cost or price, but as well has an impact on the performance. Therefore, what we see now for the future generations, and we see it already also with ACC, Daimler, Celantis, that this is, we are going to remove almost year ones from this entire value chain. 
And now we see that the car manufacturers are starting working directly with the tier twos or with the cell suppliers in order to design, develop, and make their own battery packs and integrate it into the cars. Also, the technology changes where we see that not just from the chemical perspective, which we are going to touch later on, but from the mechanical perspective, how those cells are integrated into the cars are forcing car manufacturers taking ownership of those integrations because we are talking about more cell to pack or cell to chassis. And this requires that the design of the entire battery and integration and production is going to happen on the car manufacturer side. Of course, there are going to be some niche, something like 10, 15, 20% maybe, where you are still going to have the old path where you have a cell producers independent from car manufacturers and you are going to have a tier ones which are doing these integrations. But if we look really to the mass market, 80 plus percent, this requires a lot of the collaborations. And we already talked a lot about this new business model where everybody or every OEM is trying to be more vertically integrated and is trying to follow the Tesla business model, is trying to follow BYD business model, which were in the time of this transition from combustion to electric very successful. And just naming a few, we see, and you have one good collaboration, like uh, with the mostly those collaborations based on the in, in investment in direction of the, of the cell supplier and then impacting also developments and designs. And the, the first one, the best one probably was really Tesla Panasonic. Then uh, we have here ACC with Daimler with Stellantis, which is great. We have, uh, we've seen, for example, VW uh, group working with Goshen and invested in Goshen in order to get not the high-end cells, but getting the lithium isophosphorus cells, which are enough for the daily use, I would say, for going even a little bit downstream from the technology, but getting the access to the volume or in Asia or, of course, in Europe or U.S. And what is also important, uh, like if we look at the U.S., we have a GM with LG, we have a Ford with SK Innovation. And probably this Ford SK Innovation is very interesting one because what the Jan said before, the entire manufacturing equipment which he's going to install in his fab is coming from Asia, is coming from Korea, is coming from China. What about the technology? We saw that, for example, SK Innovation was not able to deliver or to sell their battery or system, the cell systems, to the Ford because they breached the intellectual property rights with LG. And there was a big concern that without solving this problem, it means using the technology which was not owned by SK Innovation from the patent perspective and trying to sell it to the Ford was not possible. And even we saw that the White House was involved in this. And then they had the International Trade Commission make the ban for the for SK Innovation for 10 years, not delivering the NSLs to U.S., and then we saw that there was a settlement, which was about 1.8 billion in order to allow SK Innovation delivering the sales to Ford. Therefore, from my perspective, the Europe is going to face the similar things. And uh, Jan and the other companies, which are building on top of something which was already created, created 15, 20 years ago. And now you cannot just say it is state of the art because not everything is going to be state of the art. You are going to use some IP protection rights from those big companies like CATL, LGs, Panasonic, and so on. 
And then you have to find a way how you are going to even collaborate with them to get the license in order to build your own product and sell it in Europe. This is in front of us. We are going to see it. Therefore, it's better to address it a bit earlier than later because later it's going to cost more money. Wow, impressive analysis. <laughs> Do you all agree? <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's it's amazing analysis of the market, what's going on and so on. So really applause for that alone. So, and actually, if I get it also right, so like the T1 suppliers need now to really hurry up to be able to be competitive as well. Otherwise, they are kind of out of the game when the partnerships are built, let's say, and they are left out, right? This is exactly correct. And, uh, you know, everything at the end of the day, especially for the existing technology, is going to be about the volume, about the cost effectiveness, as Jan said, optimizing your production, using the data from the road to the end product, thinking about remanufacturing, thinking about recycling in order to reduce CO2, in order to reduce the cost and all of this. And uh, from that perspective, it's only the, pos the possibility which we in Europe have is to find the most clever ways with whom we should collaborate in this phase to reduce this, uh, I would say, to speed up time to the market on the one hand, on the other hand, to reduce the litigation costs, for example, in the future. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Actually, now we are going to stay very briefly in this topic of uh, successful business collaborations. And Jan, I know it's not Christmas time, but still, I mean, which of your current challenges can be possibly solved by collaboration with a strategic partner? So if you could make a wish, let's say, which partnership would you wish for? So let's ask it really positively. Which of your goals can be achieved better or more efficiently through a collaboration? So one, it's, it's really paramount for us to leverage external resources to meet our challenges, which are indeed significant. There are two fields where it's still more paramount. One is everything related to the chemistry. We know that the performance of a cell does rely to a very large extent on the materials we are utilizing for the electrodes and, and particularly for the, for the cathode. And these will remain exactly alike with the, with the development of the solid state, etc. So partnering with a chemical company to engineer the raw materials will help us to deliver higher performance, notably in terms of, of density, of energy density, and of cost. So that's one. The second one I did already mention is partnering with a machine builder, let's say a, a European machine builder, with, let's say, two objectives. One is to secure the supply of pieces of equipment for our capacity roadmap. Because uh, one more time, relying ex exclusively on, uh, on Chinese suppliers would be a, a major threat. But second, in order to improve our uh, performance, we'll have to improve dramatically our process. Just an example, moving from wet coating to dry coating. It's a significant change of the process. Tomorrow, if we want to produce solid-state battery, we know that we'll have to rely on processes which will be completely different. And in that perspective, relying on a strong partnership will definitely help uh, to, to, to meet the challenges I'm mentioning. So it's really paramount, really paramount. We won't, we won't do it being alone. 
I'm noting this down, let's say, what, what your wishes are. And not I'm not going to send it to a Santa Claus or something like that, but uh, let's say a question or a request on our audience. So if somebody has something to offer, so please come back to us and yeah, get in contact and we can, let's say, see what we can do. So Dominic, now... As cheap as possible. Hmm? <laughs> as cheap as possible. As cheap as possible. <laughs> yes, exactly. As Very fast, mindful. as efficient as possible and as cheap exactly, as possible. Exactly, so you, you got exactly. the, the point, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, if you have a wish now, why not to wish for everything? <laughs> you can have it all, yeah. Now the next question to Dominic, how to optimize the capital expenditure in production equipment if battery technology changes force cell and module suppliers to replace or update equipment every few years? How to do that at all? Yeah, this is exactly the continuity of what we discussed before. And this is really at the core of the topic of this panel, plan for mass production in one hand, but permanent innovation adoption. And to some degree in some machines, that will be, of course, uh, by adding solution, and that's our job with our competitors also to, uh, to bring agility and scalability uh, of production. If you take the example of packaging machines, it's not new. You know, they change the format and the, the designers are changing the format of packaging every six months. And so the machines need to have a, a high level of, for example, motion axis for us, electrical axis. So the time for the campaign to another batch of production is, is much shorter. So It's not just concept, it's also architectures of machines where we support the agility by itself of the machines. But what I want to say here as well is uh, the orchestra master at the end is the end user, the, the battery maker. It cannot just rely on the machine makers from Asia or from Europe. We definitely think the, the end user by itself needs to have with its chief of innovation uh, always an eye open on what exists with the, the, the first level of partners plus the other innovations that are coming to really help the, the design of the next gen of uh, battery plants, uh, solid state or not, but to reduce the RONA at the end, the return on net asset of these equipments. How can we, as Rockwell, for example, bring innovation that will help uh, to build gigafactories in 2023 that will be faster and better RONA for the 2030 technologies? So we, we need to sit around the table with battery makers because at the end, they are the orchestra master again. And we also want to talk about the digital twin of the plants because it's not only data-driven after the production start. It's even before the production started that we want to run models of uh, digital machines in a, in a virtual environment because we have observed the, the return investments uh, that is pretty quick on, on that, especially when machines come from uh, 10,000 kilometers. You need to, to aggregate a piece of the puzzle in a virtual environment before anything starts. So there are techniques, there are technologies today that are not Christmas list, for sure not, and then can really help these technologies to be on a longer term. Actually connecting the dots, you should all sit after the panel in a business meeting and discussing together. But you should have to, to remember, it must be as cheap as possible. Ah, <laughs> you yes, have to offer. yes, no, no so. doubt, no doubt. CapEx <laughs> and OPEX, yes. Yeah. So actually, in, in terms of innovation, lithium-ion batteries are viewed just as a stepping stone technology before fuel cells become viable. Greg, would you agree on that? And in the interim period, what about new disruptive battery technologies such as lithium sulfur or solid-state batteries, which are on the brink of commercialization? Are this a threat to lithium-ion investments or an involving opportunity? Wow, probably we could talk on, on that one for the next day or so, but uh, let's, let's try to focus a little bit. 
if we take a step back and what is happening in industry, we already already discussed over the last uh, one hour or so that we are seeing a huge change in the business models. We are seeing the huge advancements in the productions, uh, in growing the entire, I would say, the battery industry from almost from scratch in Europe and US. And following this, the best lessons learned from Asia. Now, if we just look from the battery perspective on the high level, we already touched on this, that there's going to be, uh, there's already a huge change in going and removing as many mechanical components as possible and trying to optimize the system cost. And Jan already touched later on that the chemistry also is really very important because without addressing the chemistry, we probably will be not able to improve on the battery performance as such, and also from the performance perspective, but also cost perspective. Now, if we look what is happening now, and here, let's start at the bottom, really quite low. We have the uh, new... The batteries which based on the sodium ion batteries, which have a not as huge energy dense, around 140 watts hours per kg, but they are already enough to address a couple of the safety challenges and also cut a couple of the opportunities in area maybe where the range is not as critical. Therefore, here we have already some new technologies which are coming to the market from the material perspective, from the production perspective and cost are much, I would say, better and cheaper compared to this what we know already. Then we go to the LFPs, which we already discussed, lithium ion phosphor. And here we see that the car manufacturers learned what the end customer requirements is going to be about. And if we are talking about the city cars, the smaller cars, which does not need the huge range, we are talking about the two, three, 300, 400 kilometers, then we can address those cars with the lithium ion phosphor batteries. And the good advantage for those LFPs batteries is that the already productions are mostly scale up because the older technology used very much in area of the storage systems, energy storage systems. And now they are finding their way really to the cars. Even the Tesla is using those batteries in, in, in China. And also you could buy those cars. And even the Volkswagen is following with Goshen and similar in the same direction. And the good advantage of the LFP battery is as well from the safety perspective, the temperature where you have going to have some thermal events of the of the cell is much higher. We are talking about a couple of hundred degrees, not just less than 200. Therefore, you have a bit more, I would say, safety in such kind of a technology. And now a lot of the changes in area of the traditional uh, liquid ion batteries based on the NCMs. And uh, here, of course, the main goal is to reduce the content of, of the cobalt, for example, in order to uh, reduce the cost and its dependency on materials. And of course, you touch already on the lithium sulfur. It's the future. It is already in the lab, on the scale-up. But what is in the lab and coming slowly into the prototype lines is everything what we talk about the solid state. And why the solid state is so exciting? There are a couple of reasons for it. The one is that the temperature operation range for the solid state compared to the liquid is going to be much more broader. 
It means, for example, you could use a solid state by very deep temperatures, minus 20, minus 30 degrees, and charge it with the full power. It means you could go 5C, where the dendrites mostly are building in the liquid batteries. This is not the case for the solid state. Therefore, you are going to have a huge power dense. At the same time, you are going to have a much higher operation temperatures from minus 20 to 80s or even above. Therefore, the temperature delta, which you could deal with, is much higher compared to this, what we have on the liquid. And therefore, this is going to have a direct impact how the battery cell pack or battery system is going to be developed. Because maybe you could even remove the entire complex cooling systems for this new technology. And this is going to reduce the complexity and the cost of the battery pack. Therefore, if we're thinking about the chemistries, we should also think how this chemistry is going to impact the entire system and system performance. The next one on the solid state is going to be better cycling. This is a, the main target. Energy dense is going to be, of course, much higher. Therefore, in the same volume, we can do more. This would be, the question is, is it going to be holy grail for, for the future? I think it's going to address during the next something like four or five years, we are going to see the first implementation on the premium vehicles. At the same time, we are going, we have already the huge capacity built up also with ACC in direction of the liquid batteries, and they are not going to disappear overnight. But this is going to be the, the solid state is going to be next generation, which is coming from the premium and is going to find and prove the place in the market. And with these new advancements, it's going to impact the entire battery system design. And then over the next decade or two, it's going to get more volume in the share of the entire battery systems. Therefore, in my opinion, this is the next following step. And every time we are talking about innovation, we have to look for the next product, for the next technology, which is going to build on top on this what already exists and outperform it from the performance, but also cost. And cost is going to be challenged on the solid state because you have to build up the volume. But on the other hand, it's going to simplify manufacturing processes because you are not dealing with the liquid and electrolyte. And also what it's going to simplify it on is safety mechanism. It means from the battery system perspective, the entire control of the safety about the thermal event is going to be much more simple because it's not going to exist on this new battery technology. Therefore, I'm really looking forward to, to the couple of the companies which are working this direction, not mentioning few like Quantum Scape, the Prologium or Solid Power, which are just focusing on this technology. They are not building up on the past. They are just focusing on the next gen. Thank you very much, Greg, for this very structured uh, question. Actually, let me make the bridge to Jan because, you know, Jan is much, much closer than anyone else on this panel to the chemistry of batteries. Jan, do you see solid state batteries also as a holy grail or what is the next big thing in the area of battery innovation? I would share the vision of Greg being slightly more cautious on the, on the timing. Let's step back a bit. Two years ago or three years ago, a lot of car manufacturers were announcing that they will bring solid-state battery to the market in their cars in 2022, 2023. It has been since then delayed, and it has been delayed because it's a very difficult technical question. So I completely share the view of Greg in terms of advantages of this, uh, of this technology, be it safety, be it durability, be it better integration in the pack or in the car, avoiding the cooling system. I would stress one point, which is that 
in order to be cost effective, i.e. in order being beyond the, the safety, you really need to have uh, lithium anode or even to uh, go to uh, anode-less uh, battery. And that's where the challenge is. That's where the challenge is. Besides, you have huge challenge on the process itself. There is a path for solid state, which is sulfide electrolyte. Working with sulfide is really something very difficult for the companies. And nevertheless, there are a lot of either startups or companies which are working on this, uh, on this path because it, uh, it, it could be highly promising from a uh, performance point of view. So bottom line, I do believe that, yes, that's uh, something we are all targeting. I'm not expecting the scale-up of this technology in the very near future. We are planning to bring this one in 2027, 2027, and I can tell you that it's a a major challenge. Having said that, there is a significant room for improving the current lithium-ion liquid liquid electrolyte uh, batteries, working on the process, working on the chemistry. And besides, I would like to stress in my view, two important uh, trends in the car industry. It's obvious that you will have high-range cars and you will have low-range cars. The major challenge for the EV is the cost of the car. It is the cost of the car. And, and I mean, the underlying assumption so far is that a nice customer will switch to an EV without uh, any problem. It's not true. It's not true. There are two others to overcome. The first one is, do I trust in the infrastructure? Do I trust I'll be able to recharge my, uh, my car in a limited amount of time or not? That's a major issue in, uh, in Europe, more or less depending on the countries, but it's, a, it's an issue. And the second one is the cost of the car. The cost of the car, which is still much higher than the one of, a, uh, of, a, of an ICE. And one way to reduce the gap is to reduce the range. That's why solutions such as uh, LFT are indeed solutions which I, I do believe will uh, grow over time. And uh, as a matter of fact, the, the share of LFT is growing month after month in the sales of, uh, of, uh, of batteries. Because if we want the market, the automotive market, not significantly shrinking, there's a need for low-cost solutions. I mean, even when discussing with, uh, with Mercedes, Mercedes, they are, they are requesting uh, local solutions. They are, requ- well, maybe not for the EQS, but uh, for other cars. So it's a major concern. It's a major concern. And, uh, and on this one, I'm convinced that we'll keep on working, bringing low-cost chemistry to the, to the market. So actually, when I, let's say, summarize that now, we would have at least two different types of chemistry, depending on the demand for the car, just considering the range. Yes, exactly. Thank you very much. And because it's so challenging, I'm also not going to ask you about the timeline for the solid state batteries and so on. So I'm very aware of that, not to ask that question. Now to Dominique. Europe is seeing big investment from large cell makers, for example, LG, CATL, and Panasonic, but also from startups such as Northwald, Pharisees, British Walt, Etalwald, and so on. So, and increasing joint venture with the OEMs that we already mentioned several times in this discussion. Will there be enough demand for all to succeed? And how can new players compete on price and on battery performance? 
Let me lie, you name uh, several customers here, so I must be careful. In, and it's, uh, again, two questions in one. But uh, with the European Green Deal, I think uh, I'm not too much worried about the the problem of the of the demand because it's, as we said for Cadenza before, it's stationary batteries, it's mobility. So will we have ESS uh, batteries in our home in the future or electrolyzers and local hydrogen production? We will see, but for, for sure, digital technology will play a role in that. And the demand is here. Now more the question about the new players to compete on price and performance. I can just again take an example from another industry that I know pretty well, the tire industry. I don't know if you made the similitude with tire and batteries, but it starts with the mixing and component preparation, a lot of R&D on the materials. It's rolling and rolling and calendaring and sliding and the assembly curing testing. So a radial tire is a very common structure. It's a very common uh, basic tire today that everyone can produce. And anyway, you agree that these tires have different performance and the cheapest tires are not necessarily having the customer preference because of security, because of rolling resistance, because even the brand recognition of the tire manufacturers, you will decide for the tire you have on your car. So you see, for me, battery players, new battery players, uh, will have also like the tire ones today. They have to bring new services uh, they have to be bold, for sure, creative, and to bring disruptive materials, design that will enable a step forward in performance. But even before we talk about solid state in 10, 15, 20 years, we don't know exactly. Uh, even on the battery technology, as we know, I'm sure a lot will come from startups or creative uh, and bold companies. Also, uh, vehicle to vehicle uh, or V2X, V2N uh, technologies with the car OEMs. So again, um, with that, machines will not be for sure low-end uh, OE, but more best-in-class OE in any case. But again, innovation and creativity will make a difference here for, for the competition and price. Now, also a big point for you for the creativity to make this comparison, because now this uh, picture is going to stick in my mind, let's say, the, with the tires. So that's really good example. So always to remember that. And actually, the next question to Greg would you expect to see this increasing joint venture, which we also mentioned several times already, between battery cell manufacturers and OEM in this creation of new gigafactories? And what are the strengths and weaknesses of such joint ventures for both parties? And further ahead, do you expect to see OEM increasingly produce their own cells? For example, like Tesla and Volkswagen already had stated this. When, when I look into those, into those joint ventures, they are the two types of joint ventures. On the one hand side, you have uh, joint ventures where the car manufacturers are investing and building up from scratch like ACC, completely new production, and which doesn't exist or was not existing before. And here, definitely, there is the win-win for both. It means it's more or less the shareholders of the ACCs are the car manufacturers and, and the total. Therefore, from that perspective, they control what ACC does. Therefore, here I see very easy way from car manufacturers' perspective because this what they pay for is going to be more or less delivered. It is a goal which the young has to work on to make the investors happy. Now, if we look on the other collaborations, if you have, for example, the LG or Panasonic in the past working with Tesla, there was, you know, there was from the beginning the power game. It means everybody, there was a Panasonic would like to learn what is about the vehicle. Tesla would like to learn what is about building their cells. And then after a couple of years, as we, as we saw, once everybody learned what was possible, somehow this is not more the focus. It means they could, or car manufacturers like Tesla can do it on its own. And now, 
if we look there, for example, the other collaborations like um, I would say GMLG, then uh, here we have uh, two powerhouses. You know, the question is who, who is a stronger one? And today the challenge which, you, which the karma OEMs have, the car manufacturers have, is that they don't have access really to the full data, how the cell is produced, what the materials are inside, how the what, what is really the, the gain which the cell manufacturing is, is getting out of the selling the cells to the, to the OEMs. And this is, and on the other hand, the cell manufacturers like the LG or CTLs, they have not enough data about the cell performance in the vehicles because this data is controlled by car manufacturers. Therefore, in this big, in, in this gains between these two powerhouses, on the one side, existing cell manufacturers and existing car manufacturers, there is everything about the data. Who is going to own the data in order to optimize the system? It's not the case like for, for ACC where they can share the data between car manufacturers and cell producers because they are already almost like one company more or less, but it's not the case for these big powerhouses. And therefore there's a question, is this going to be sustainable for CATL, LG and other car manufacturers working together in the mode like they do today? And I would say from this, what we saw already, for example, with the CATL recently, a few days back, when they announced the new business models going in the battery swapping, building up the new, not just the chemistry, but doing the new technology where you could put the modular system and use the short range, middle range or high range, and you could really put it as a, as a building blocks into your vehicles. This is the way how now the cell manufacturers would like to go upstream and create more value. Honestly speaking, building up the electric car is not as difficult as building the combustion in the past. Therefore, we are going to see more of those companies going upstream like the CATL, LGs and similar and making their own cars or building the new platforms and offering those platforms to the, uh, to the industry. On the other hand, we see the fully integrated car manufacturers like Tesla, like NIO, which are really controlling, or BYD, which are really controlling everything which is in the entire supply chain for making the batteries. Therefore, I think we have a couple of the success stories. We have a couple of the, I would say, stories like Tesla, Panasonic, which were success at the beginning now are, are more history. And we are going to see that those business models are still going to involve in the future, because we are going to get the new car players coming to the market, and everybody's waiting for the one common of our future car manufacturers, which is doing mobile phones today. And let's see what's coming from this end. Uh, let's see, uh, you know, how the Rivians, how the Lucids, all of those car new car manufacturers are, which have huge market caps today compared to the existing one, are going to develop in that direction. But from this, what we see, they are following, all they're following really the Tesla business model where they would like to control everything from end to end and have an impact and knowledge about the, from material to the end product about the battery system. And just putting the, the last sentence on this, it's really very important to think through from the material to the end system. It means what is happening with the battery at the end of the life because it's going to have an impact on the recycling. It's going to have also impact on the how, if, the, for example, the battery system, one cell or another cell is maybe not performing, how to repair such kind of a battery system. 
We don't want to scrap the entire battery system if the one or two cells are not, are not performing. Today, we have a, with the ICE, we have an opportunity to repair combustion engine, and exactly the same has to happen on the battery side system. It means we all batteries have to be developed in mind for uh, making the possibility to repair them, but also thinking about how I'm going to recycle them once they are coming back in, in, in a few years. Thank you very much again for covering a very good analysis of the market, let's say, showing how the picture looks like now and also giving a lot of, let's say, theory how it can work. And now let's make again the bridge to Jan because Jan is, let's say, on the other end because Jan Daimler and Stellantis have shares in ACC. So you are exactly in one of this kind of, yeah, let's say, partnerships or, yeah, they are, let's say, shareholders, right? So, so how has this vertical integration strengthened the business and how do you see this trend developing across the whole automotive industry? Now more about the reality, not just theory. <laughs> I would start stressing the fact that the OEM they are willing to secure the supply of batteries. And for them, it's absolutely paramount, absolutely paramount. And the, the threat that could be not supplied by the existing suppliers is so important that, that they accept to deal with a startup. I mean, you need understanding that if Mercedes, if Stellantis agree to, su to, to, to supply from ACC, 50% uh, around uh, of the demand. So from a company, which is uh, only one year company, which has so far produced nothing, that's because there is a significant threat. And the significant threat for the European car manufacturers, but the uh, American, it's, uh, it's alike, is to rely on a supply which would be 100% Asian one. So that's the reason why. And Honestly, I'm expecting all the, uh, at least all the car manufacturers operating in Europe and in the US to behave the same way. They won't rely on a supply 100% Asian. Having said that, yes, in, uh, these, uh, these shareholdings do improve, do strengthen ACC. One, it secures our future production and it's very important to get money. It is as simple as that battery industry is highly capital intensive and if you want to get loans if you want to have an access to the market a cheap one you need to rely on existing supply contracts and being able to to partner with two oem is a way to secure the future contracts so that's one the second one is that we are building an industry in europe starting from scratch we need to recruit talents and the fact that we can rely on strong brand image of all shareholders is clearly an asset. It helps us to recruit skilled, uh, skilled people. So that's, uh, that's a way it, uh, it does strengthen us beyond their competencies on mass manufacturing, which will be as well uh, an asset for the future. You know, such uh, shareholders, they definitely bring financial security. They bring knowledge. But how much is it also about image? I mean, when you announce, for example, that you are, let's say now Mercedes is going to be also shareholder in ACC, how much did you notice that other car manufacturers started, let's say, to trust you more and started to build up partnerships and so on? And we're also like coming to the first contact with you and so on. Did you notice any kind of increase because of that? 
Well, what we did notice is that people from uh, faraway countries became interested by ACC, expressed their interest to join our uh, company. And the second point is that we are keeping on discussing with all the car manufacturers. So they all come to us telling us, well, is it possible to do something? Is it possible to, to be supplied by, uh, by ACC? So that's, a, that's the value of these uh, shareholdings. Thank you very much for, for this very honest reply as well. So thank you very much on that. Now let's go a little bit back to here and now in our discussion. Dominic, what are the priorities in the design and manufacture of equipment used to make lithium-ion batteries? So what is, let's say, the status quo now? At which point does the effort to minimize the environmental impact of battery manufacturing come in? Yeah, I think there are multiple priorities, but uh, as we just said before on the previous question, uh, the short-term reason in the priorities is the time to market. It's a design to cost, it's a certain envelope of capex, and find uh, what are available uh, machine builders. So priorities, I think number one, time to market for the current project that are ongoing, the greenfield. But having in mind also the mid-term uh, and maybe longer term, as I said before, to consider the uh, equipment that will give a better return on net assets uh, on the long term uh, because of the development that are ongoing from uh, Uppsala, Mersac, Aron or Coventry. You know, there are a lot of things that will run on different type of machines. And this is probably a second term. But short or long term, uh, as I said, we, we see a priority to... Uh, to not only uh, go to a virtual design of the building or the white room like uh, companies like uh, Excite are doing, but really to, uh, to embed into these 3D models the, the real-time machines running in a virtual environment. Because with that, you can start to, uh, to train your operators, uh, attract talent and, and share you know, with also investors what will be really the plant running in a virtual environment. So there are a lot of things that we can do further Uh, than uh, the modelization that is uh, done today for, for battery plants. But above that, uh, as a priority, for sure, this uh, data-centric organization and the, the analytics on machines, smart machines, as we said before, that's really not something uh, we would like uh, battery makers to think when the machines will be running. We'd like them to really start to think about this, uh, these things even before the shipments of the machines, as I said, running in a virtual environment or not, but start to, uh, to structure uh, groups and, and, and expertise uh, on that even before the machines are in production. And we can deliver that, but for sure, as you like to hear, uh, Mila, it's not alone. It's with collaboration with PTC, it's Cisco, it's Microsoft, uh, ANSYS and others. Uh, really, it's an immense objective that we have all of us here. So we need to work with a lot of convergence on that. Yeah, actually, you just recently announced the collaboration with the Microsoft as well. No? So I just remember. Yes, Microsoft, but uh, also Fenwick on robotics. It's, it's, we cannot deliver all by our own. And of course, collaboration is also with machine builders. Uh, the, the European ones, the big names that are willing to be end-to-end -end in the battery plants today, mainly out of Germany, but also France and Italy. We need to partner also with these uh, machine builders. And you mentioned actually very nicely the priorities that you said, let's say, in the first part of the reply. And where in the priority range is environmental impact? <laughs> Try to be It's, honest on that. Uh, not in the short term, I, I see. But of course, the energy management on the plant, it's off the shelf. It's not because it's a battery plant that it's unique. We have an energy management solution. We have building management system. All of that will be applied on the, on the buildings and the plants. That's not so much uh, different. 
but uh, we can just add uh, also on top the, as I mentioned, the battery passport. At certain times, the MES of the plant need to be plugged into this battery passport. You need to have the report on the, the CO2 footprint and the, the entire CO2 generated by the battery, maybe at uh, individual cells level. So the connectivity, digital connectivity to this battery passport will come as well in the, in the discussions. Thank you very much for the honest answer as well. And now, Greg, we are staying in this topic, actually. What are your key learnings from working with suppliers and logistic providers to minimize emissions from the movement and storage of battery materials? Yeah, it's in, I think uh, this entire, I would say, responsibility for producing the battery system uh, on the minimum environmental impact is the huge potential for Europe. And it's exactly where we are currently, or based on the all lessons learned which Asia had, we are implementing the best lessons learned from, from this, what they already did. And here we can definitely outperform and we can improve here because it's, you know, it's always easier to build or to be a follower than create something from scratch. Yeah? And now being the follower, we can already address a couple of the issues which uh, Asia had and to make it even better. Therefore, you know, the entire EU battery regulation proposal, which is already discussed and it's coming to the power during the next, uh, in, the ne in the next time. And in order to make the EU climate uh, neutral by 2050 is going to be, is going to be the huge, huge challenge for existing supply chain. And of course, it's going to be already addressed in the new supply chain like we are building. Therefore, to make the carbon footprint declaration for the making the batteries by from 24 is, is the one part of this. And as we know, based on some analysis, about one kilowatt hours batteries requires to produce requires about 100 kilograms of CO2. And now if we are going to bring the recycling into this, then probably we can reduce it by about 30%. It means which is going to be about 30 kilograms, which is a huge number. Therefore, just thinking about, about how we are going to connect, and already Dominic talked a lot about the digital passport as well, which is going to be part of the equation because it's a part of the data driven approach from the material over the uh, uh, refinement, over the cell, over the battery packs uh, vehicle in order to create the entire, I would say, digital twin for the system. And optimizing on this is really the way how we are addressing in Europe. And there are many initiatives uh, coming also and pushed by the European government in direction of the data how we are going to deal with data, how we are going to exchange data in the industry, and in my opinion, is really very important. We should not forget that social responsibility, because there are a lot of the materials in the batteries which are coming from Congo or other places. And here again, the, the digital passport and tracking the data is going to be is going to be a must and is going to be implemented and is going to be differentiator compared to this, what, uh, for example, the Asian players are doing today. They have to build on top. They have to make it as well. And 
if I will look, for example, the car manufacturers, and uh, if I'm looking at the next generation of battery systems, then even now where the tier one role is going to be less and less, mostly focusing on the production, build to print and so on, then already now, if you are quoting the next battery generation systems in production, you have to guarantee that those batteries are going to be produced with the green energy with, I would say, zero CO2 footprint or even negative if possible. The same for the cell production. I, I, I'm in, in working with one other cell supplier, which is quoting for 2025, 2026, the cells to car manufacturers here in Europe. And they have to guarantee that those batteries uh, are going to be produced already with the green energy. There was until now the discussion in Europe is the nuclear power, nuclear power, the green energy, yes or no. And uh, there have been different opinions. Now we see that the EU is pushing having nuclear power, but also gas as a green for time being, which uh, may be questionable on the gas side, but uh, this is the way how, how, how it's happening now. But a very important aspect on this is that it's not just about technology. It's about really having in mind that this technology has to be produced in a sustainable way and all data management is going to help here. And also it's about logistic because these parts are heavy and trans transporting them from over the couple of hundred kilometers or thousands of kilometers is not more sustainable because it has that it's going to have a more negative impact on the on the CO2 footprint for those uh, components. Therefore, now if in the future we are going to see it's not just about the cost, it's also about how much CO2 footprint this component is bringing into the vehicle once installed in the car. And here also I see from the European perspective some opportunities to outperform this what's happening in Asia and uh, to, to improve and to have a better a CO2 footprint, and with this, automatically get, have some gain compared to the competition. It's a very, very complex topic, as we see. And actually, uh, as you mentioned also in the beginning, like, okay, uh, to be a follower is always easy, but to be a leader is, let's say, more bold, more exciting, more like real life. And you are here all in this panel because you are in this leader mindset. And definitely we are here, let's say, to, to make that happen. And now we are going to change the topic of the panel completely. So now we are going to talk about the people, about the experts. So Jan, building a new battery industry requires a lot of talents, such as, for example, in electrochemistry. Where can ACC find such skills? Well, it's indeed a challenge because, uh, as I've said previously, we are building this industry from scratch in Europe. And uh, some of the competencies you, you did mention, electrochemistry is one of them, are not existing in, in Europe. So, well, uh, what we are doing, we are, we are hunting. Uh, so there is a war for talents. Indeed, we are building the future at the same time, i.e. we are discussing with the, with the university to set up training courses for the future. But the first step is clearly uh, headhunting. So that's, uh, that's the way we do. Thank you very much also for this very, very honest answer as well. And now we stay in this topic. Dominic, are you also currently facing any challenges in terms of recruitment of staff? Yes, it's also a challenge for us too, uh, because uh, with the COVID crisis, uh, it has decoupled the interest on the, of the industry for Internet of Things, this artificial intelligence network, and, and even security. We haven't talked much today about the security topic, but it's also a major demand of industrial companies to raise their level of security for IP uh, 
protection. So, but more than attracting and, uh, and recruiting, it's also retaining talents. And this is where also we have uh, like a, a priority based on our ethical company culture. We, we really uh, work every day to uh, not only attract and recruit, but retain talents. And that's another challenge. But yes, for sure, it's a major challenge for everyone today. Mm-hmm. Now, Greg, very, very similar question to you as well. Do you already see difficulties in finding suitable people in new areas of expertise? Or is it like still a ticking bomb that will come to light later on? Recently, I had a discussion with a colleague of mine who is uh, one of the leaders at the car manufacturer. And he said, Greg, today we have uh, 6,000 mechanical engineers and uh, tomorrow we should have uh, 6,000 electrical IT software, electrochemistry engineers in order to go through this EV revolution transformation uh, which we are on. Therefore, from, from that perspective, the question is, okay, are you going to get all new people? Are you going to transfer some people uh, to the to the new jobs? And exactly as we have heard from Jan and Dominique, there is a there is a mixed uh, challenge. It means on the one hand side you don't want to lose your crew which you have because you you based on on this on this talents on these resources. Therefore, you have to help them in this transformation. But at the same time, you have to bring the new talents into the game. And from the tier one perspective, I would say it's so difficult nowadays because as we have said the business model is changing it means you have a two players now which are really in, in area of the battery uh, technologies you have a car manufacturers which are building the new capacity and even if they are investing in acc many of them are also building their own smaller scale labs plants uh, prototype lines where they are requiring the talents as well therefore there's going to be even the competition uh, inside such kind of the in-house organizations and investments where they do. On the other hand, you have a cell manufacturers, which are really huge powerhouses with the multi-billion businesses and with very good names. And these guys are pulling people as well, or the new startups, which are in this area developing the next gens. Therefore, from the tier one perspective, if you think about the battery systems, I think it's going to, or is already a huge challenge even to retain the talents which you had because you had the talents which they were developing the systems and now this development is happening on the OEM side or cell supplier side. Therefore, you are losing this part of the of the business and now how to retain the good people if, if you are not going to do these exciting jobs. Therefore, this is already a huge challenge. And on the other hand, as I said, you know, if you have a newcomers coming, then the question is, you know, how to attract them to work for tier one if they have a fantastic opportunity on the car manufacturer side or the cell supplier side. Therefore, I, I would say nowadays the TA1 position is, I would say, one in the area of battery system, one of the most difficult ones to have a, a really the resource you need to require for building up the future. Jan already knows that part of our technology podcast, I ask all the exciting leader personalities about their personal lessons learned or best advices or life motto, etc. Also this time, I don't want to miss the opportunity to learn from all of you. So, as so many know, connecting people is one of my absolute passions. That's why I want to connect the three of you through this question on a very human level. Because I think we all had quite similar challenges in the last two years. A question to all of you. How has pandemic changed your leadership style? And what are your top three lessons learned over the last two years in terms of leadership and or working from home experience? 
pandemic is, is clearly a challenge. One, it is pushing for, it has pushed for remote work and remote work implies basically more than ever to be result driven instead of being process driven. I mean, you are requesting results to your people. They can work at home during the night. They can train. They can make a sport during the day. We don't care. We don't care. So for me, it's, a, it's really a drive for being much more highly result-driven. And to a large extent, it is a challenge for the middle management. The middle management, which was used to which is used to have his people, his teammates around him controlling uh, what they are doing. So he has to move to a result-driven style of management. And it's a, it's a major change in my, in my perspective. The second point is that what we can observe, it has, it has pushed some countries to close their borders or to make very difficult entering in the, in the countries. You mean China, right? Yes, that's the case for China. I believe it's an opportunity for reindustrializing uh, Europe. And I really believe that reindustrialization of Europe is paramount for the social stability of Europe. It's only when you have a strong industry activity that you can hope moving from being today a worker to become a CEO some years, uh, some years after. In the industry, I mean, if you are a hairdresser or a guy cleaning, well, you won't do. You won't do. So, I mean, reindustrialization of Europe is not only a question of sovereignty, it is as well a question of social stability. And, and from that perspective, pandemic is, a, is an opportunity. And the last point, it's clearly a challenge for some people, uh, I've seen some people very anxious being alone at home, working alone at home. So it does push for getting closer to your, to your teammates. It does push to grow your empathy in order to make it work. So those are my key lessons from this uh, pandemic, which I do hope will be uh, eventually over. <laughs> And actually, it mirrors really what we said in the beginning with all the empathetic and being more flexible and so on. So how we started actually the session. Yeah, this is a good question. And uh, as you have said, uh, we circle loop uh, this uh, to the final question. But no, that was a challenging uh, experience for sure for all of us. Uh, but I would say that uh, I have been developing, I would say, my soft skills on, on that uh, time. And uh, it made me easier to to form the relationship with other people because uh, at the end uh, this is uh, how it works to uh, to unlock uh, more career related opportunities so soft skills developments uh, i like the motto from michelin you know become who you are i don't know if you know this one to be back on tire business but that's really uh, what i have also in mind to become who, you, who we are and not change ourselves the second one is in terms of management for my direct reports and the affinity team Uh, we never say enough uh, the bra bravo messages and encouragements uh, because we need to keep alive uh, the team spirit and this has been challenging. And the third and last, to say that I, I've been lucky to, to travel globally for eight years in my previous role, to meet people in presence uh, in, in real life, and that have helped me a lot in the Microsoft Teams uh, new life. So I know the future will be different. It will be more balanced, less travels for sure. 
But uh, that was for me uh, lucky good to, <laughs> to see uh, this uh, eight years previous role. Thank you very much. You know, I, I have already my favorites become who you really are. That's, I mean, that's yes. the easiest way, right? To be authentic, to be real, honest. Yeah. <laughs> it will go on my wall. You know, I'm, I'm collecting okay. the, the mottos or very key learnings from my guests. So that will go definitely on my wall. So now, Greg, your turn. Yeah, it, it's definitely challenging. And I think it's more challenging, not just for, for leaders, but also for all employees, uh, which are working together. And the best and the most important lesson I have from, from that time, and I already landed in the, my past job when I was dealing with all time zones and all teams distributed worldwide, and even I was 300,000 miles a year on the, on the plane, still was not able to be with every team long enough. Therefore, it was already a lot of the communication going on, going on over video or, or similar. But yeah, building trust was the most important, uh, is the, in my opinion, the most important part. And here, yeah, especially caring for each individual. It means you are, you, are not, you are not talking only to the team. You are talking to each individual and you have to understand really what is happening behind the screen once you are in such kind of interaction. Because as we know, the, the best communication method is being face-to-face in the one room because then you sense what's going on on the other side. Then you have a video, then you have the phone, and then you have an email. Therefore, even now, fortunately, due to the technology, we can really enjoy having the live video connection, and we learned a lot how to use it. And also, what it was very important, being transparent about the plans. It means, what are the plans in this crisis like COVID? Because during such kind of a crisis, if you, are, if you have the employees which are not chatting every day with you and uh, between each other, it's, it's really very important that they, they understand what the plan of the company is during this crisis, in which direction you would like to develop a company and what changes are where the employees should expect. And then, of course, communicate clearly. And somebody told me, and it's really the case, you cannot over-communicate. Therefore, it, it communicate, communicate, communicate is always better than uh, less communicate. And very important, increase uh, flexibility, agility, and this what we already touched before, empathy because the soft skills as Dominic already mentioned as well because you know in such kind of a sensitive time you have really to sense more with with getting less data therefore in order to do so then empathy definitely is going to help you and agility and flexibility is going to also support the employees during this difficult time and maybe the last one, what I noticed and what uh, I also saw with the employees I work with or with the others uh, is that uh, if you are not directly in the system, if you are remote, then you are start losing and you are start losing the shared purpose why you are doing what you are doing. And very important from the leader side is to address exactly the shared purpose. It means to give the employees the vision and the mission and repeat it and repeat it again and again, just to connect them again to the system. And like being together in one office or being distributed, sharing the same purpose is really the most important. It is the role of the leader to take care of it. Actually, the last point that you mentioned, it is already proved by studies that a lot of people uh, changed their position, changed their the job within the pandemic because they lost that vision or connection to that vision that a lot of people asking themselves, okay, 
what am I doing that for actually? So very, very important points and transparency as well and so on. So thank you very much for this very insightful input. And so now the time has come to close this panel. And I thank you all for all the input, all the knowledge, all the honesty and energy you put into shaping the industry with your expertise and changing it for the better. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank you, you warmly. I think uh, we've addressed indeed the main challenges. There is a, an energy transition which is underway and building a battery industry in Europe is highly exciting. One, because it does contribute to the protection of the, of the planet thanks to its contribution to the CO2 reduction. So from that point of view, it's exciting. And the second point is that it does contribute to the reindustrialization of the project uh, of, the, of Europe. So it's a very ambitious project, very ambitious project. To be successful, we need to rely on strong collaboration within Europe with uh, the different partners which were mentioned during this panel. Thanks a lot. Thank you as well. It was a pleasure having you in this panel again, let's say in this format again, let's say. And I say just uh, see you again in the next interview. <laughs> really, one thank you uh, for having me here today because I was very impressed not only by the timekeeper that you are, look at that, we are exactly on time, but also by the flow of the questions, you know. It, it was very smooth in the, uh, the first response to be by the next question and so on. So really the flow was super well organized. And I think the three of us, we were representing a certain pool of, of expertise to, uh, to respond to your question. So thank you very much for having me today. Thank you very much for really being here and being all able to contribute so open-minded, so honest. It was really a huge pleasure to have you here. We are during probably one of the biggest transformations in the industry during the last 100 years. We just touched today on the automotive changes, but the same is happening in the energy sector and the other sectors as well. Therefore, we see that there is the huge demand coming from the technology side, from the market side, policy side. We talk a lot about the technology today. We talk about the collaborations. And it, it, such kind of a huge transformations cannot happen without collaborations. And I strongly believe that uh, the Elite Experts Conference uh, and Yuludmila organizing it and driving such kind of a panels are helping shaping this uh, fantastic future and helping creating this future with uh, all participants and everybody who is going later on listen to it. And I'm sure more is, is better. Therefore, I'm looking forward to the next sessions uh, with you all of guys in order to create better future for all of us. We are definitely going to continue like that. And also, thank you very much for your great appreciation. It was really great to have you in this panel and also You know, you emphasized business collaborations. So, and that's something that is really, as I don't know how many times mentioned, at least in that panel and, and all the time, actually. So this is something that I really believe in that is, can be the driving force of innovation, of accelerating, of pushing the boundaries forward in so many aspects and so many topics. So we are going to continue like that. So, and also I would love to see you collaborate in the future. And if that panel will be initial point of that, I will be the happiest person on earth. And if we see, let's say, in the audience, somebody who, who can contribute to something what was said in this panel, please get in contact. Please ask for collaboration. Please ask for meetings, etc., etc. 
This platform is exactly for that, to connect people, not just job titles, you know? So it's more about people because people drive the innovation forward. So that's what we believe in. Thank you very much. There are many ways to achieve a more sustainable future. There are many companies and innovative leaders who choose and actively go very different ways. Let's just not forget one thing. No matter how different the ways are, the big goal is one and the same. See you very soon in the next episode.